Today we're continuing with um, the series that was started last week um, of reflections looking at the letter of Paul to um, the Galatians. And I just want to begin with a quick recap as to why this letter was written in the first place, uh, as described for us in the first part of chapter 1, which I think you read last week when I was in Scotland. We know from the New Testament that Paul established the church in Galatia. The Galatians were former pagans, i.e. Gentiles, who had been converted to Christianity by Paul. By comparison, the churches in Jerusalem had been established by the disciples, and those converts were former Jews. After Paul had left Galatia, some other Christians from these Jewish backgrounds had appeared uh, preaching a different gospel from the one that Paul had taught them. Understandably, Paul is more than a tad angry at what has happened in Galatia and expresses his amazement that they turned away from the gospel he presented to them. It wasn't even that they'd reverted to their pre-conversion beliefs. It was more that they had been swept off their feet by a new set of preachers who were much more fundamentalist than Paul was. They saw Paul's mission as a sellout of the truth. Paul was just making faith easy. No wonder he was successful. He was just missing the difficult bits out. Paul's willingness not just to lie down and submit to these um, assertions, but to defend himself, that's the word, but to defend himself and to assert what he believed to be true has left us with the legacy of this amazing letter. Firstly, Paul had to defend his gospel. You'll remember uh, last week, verse 7, there are some who are throwing you into confusion and want to pervert the gospel. But in order to change the gospel, they had to first discredit what Paul was saying. So these Judaizers, or Jewish Christians, have gone out to set the Galatian churches straight and tell them what they thought was the truth. The new preachers were apparently saying something like this. Just imagine for a moment you're in the church in Galatia instead of Camborne. You Galatians have taken the first important step in coming to faith in Christ. Now, complete what you've begun by observing the Mosaic law. Become circumcised. Celebrate the Jewish festivals. Observe the kosher food laws, etc. Only by assuming these responsibilities will you fully share in the inheritance promised to God's people. Think of Abraham, who believed in God and became circumcised. Like Abraham, you too believe. Now do what Abraham did. Accept circumcision and your Mosaic covenant obligations. Now just to clarify, the Mosaic covenant refers to a biblical covenant between God and the children of Israel. That was established and the stipulations of that are um, in the Mosaic Covenant are recorded in the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, which collectively are known as the Torah. 
And this covenant is sometimes referred to as the law of Moses or Mosaic law. And these Jewish Christians were saying, we have to follow the law of Moses. However, the Mosaic covenant is seen by Christians as the old covenant, in contrast to the new covenant, which was established by Jesus. You may remember Jesus' expounding of the law during his Sermon on the Mount. This morning, as usual, you'll hear it referred to in the communion service. This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. Paul's message to the church in Galatia, the Gentiles there, was that they are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone and not by observing the law. The message of the Jewish Christians may have been quite attractive to these Galatians because they considered Paul's gospel of freedom a bit inadequate. The law would certainly give them clear marks of identity, such as circumcision and distinctive rituals. Moreover, it would offer clear directives as to how to behave in certain situations. Maybe a bit better than Paul's letter does, which argues for freedom, and that responsibility then falls on the individual. The Galatians may well have been beginning to think that Paul had given them a Christianity made easy, that they'd only heard half the story, Jesus, but not the Torah. And Paul's opponents could easily have pointed out that the apostles like Peter and James and John proclaimed Jesus as Messiah while continuing to observe Jewish practices. The natural inference was that Paul was ignoring the law in order to win converts quickly. Secondly, Paul has to defend his apostleship. Not content with destroying Paul's gospel, we read in verse 7 that these Jewish Christians were calling into question Paul's apostleship. For them, Paul was just a Johnny-come-lately to the apostolic band. He'd not been with Jesus in his earthly ministry. And now here he was, starting churches in the name of the Messiah and telling Gentiles they don't have to be circumcised or keep the feasts. Paul may claim to be an apostle, but he's not really one. He may claim to preach the true gospel, but he only has it secondhand from the true apostles, you know. And his version is seriously flawed. So Paul's kind of finding himself with his back against the wall. These opponents probably also claimed better credentials than Paul had. They could name drop leading apostles that they'd been associated with, like Peter and James and John. As for Paul, he had no such authority. That's the situation that leads to Paul's double defense in chapter 1. Verse 1, I am an apostle, just as much as Peter, because I've seen the risen Christ, and it is he, not any mere man, who sent me to preach in his name. And verse 12, my gospel is true, as true as Peter's, because I did not learn it from any mere man second hand but received it just as much from Jesus as the first apostles did. For Paul, the truth of his apostleship 
and the truth of his message stand or fall together. If Paul is no apostle, then his claim to authority and truth collapses completely. Likewise, if his gospel proves to be human concoction, then he forfeits the right to be called an apostle. Paul therefore has to set out to establish the authenticity of both his ministry and his message before proceeding with his study on the gospel of God's grace in Christ. So let's just pause for a moment and establish what's happening here. There's much more at stake than Paul's ego, though knowing Paul, a bit arrogant at times, that would certainly play a part. It was a matter of what lay at the heart of the faith. Was it grace with freedom to remove barriers, even biblical ones if necessary? Or was it law enshrined in an attitude towards the Bible? Authority and truth are the central issues here. Two messages are vying for our allegiance this morning, Paul's and that of the Jewish Christians. Only one of these gospels is true. Believing the true one's obviously important for us too, not just for the Galatians. Paul is forcing upon us the issue of truth. Truth really matters to him. And Paul insists in verse 20, I think it is, that he is not lying. But what he doesn't do is just fling his authority and say, I know better than you do, against that of the Jewish Christians, and let the Galatians take a shot in the dark as to which one is true. He gives evidence to make his case. And verses 13 to 24 that we heard this morning are Paul's argument for the truth of his apostleship and for his gospel. And I want you just to take a look at how he makes his case. Paul has four distinct points to make in his defense. First of all, his gospel is not of human origin. If you want to follow it in your Bibles, in verse 11 and 12, Paul begins by arguing that the gospel he proclaims is not a product of human devising and certainly not something taught to him by another person. Rather, the gospel which Paul proclaims is actually a revelation that was given to him by God through the person of Jesus Christ. Many of us will be very familiar with the story of Paul's meeting with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus which you can read about in Acts. Paul relates what Jesus said to him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Stand and rise on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue from you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So Paul argues Christ appeared to him and commissioned him personally to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul, of course, was not suggesting that the truth comes solely by direct revelation. He fully expected people excuse me, to receive the gospel through teaching and preaching. He says so in verse 9. Instead, 
he was trying to show that he had not derived his proclamation from the Jerusalem apostles and then simply ignored observance of the law to make it more palatable to the Gentiles. His gospel had its own independent validity. As a second piece of evidence, Paul presents his former way of life. He begins his argument in verses 13 and 14 by recounting how unremittingly anti-Christian he was before his conversion. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Just notice that any of the people listening to him in Galatia could actually um, check that out, what he was about to say. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul had ravaged the church and had been one of the most vigorous Pharisees of his day and proud of it he had been. Christianity offered salvation through faith in Christ and so completely ignored the ordinances to which Paul had devoted his life thus far. So he'd lashed out against the church with all his might. Not exactly a very pretty piece of autobiography, is it? But the reason Paul describes his pre-conversion life is to show how utterly improbable it is that he could ever have been allured into the ranks of the apostles by any human effort. The apostles had been his arch enemies. He'd be the last person on earth to fabricate a Christianity made easy by ignoring the law. Formerly, he'd been known precisely for his devotion to the law. Paul argues, therefore, that there's only one adequate explanation of how he came to devote his life to Christ, to the Christ he'd hated, and how he came to preach the gospel that overturned his whole life. Verse 15, when God, who had set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He points out how complete and astonishing his conversion was. From persecutor to preacher. From one ready to kill Christians to one ready to be killed as a Christian. From one who heard in the Christian message a threat to everything he stood for to one who now had a vision of the gospel that blew his old Pharisaic attitudes right out of the the water. What had happened? How do we account for such astonishing reversal? Paul argues that to try to to explain the change from his pre-conversion persecution to his post-conversion passion merely by the work of men, is ridiculous. He knew that he'd seen the risen Christ and had been commissioned to preach. And the only way he could verify that experience for others is to point to the effects it had. And remarkable effects they are, aren't they? Reminiscent of the massive change in the apostles that we saw at Pentecost. 
In fact, all things considered, this argument, I think, is the most convincing, not only for the Galatians, but for us too, that Paul's, Paul's gospel did come by revelation and is not according to man. For his third point of defense, Paul describes his journey since his conversion on the Damascus Road. So to tighten his case further, Paul sketches in verses 16 onwards what he did after his encounter with Christ. So no one should get the idea that the vision of Christ simply said, go study with the apostles in Jerusalem. Paul says he didn't confer with flesh or blood or go to study with the apostles. He went to Arabia. Then he returned to Damascus. Now he doesn't tell us what he did in Arabia. But only after three years, after his gospel had taken definitive shape, Paul went up to Jerusalem then to get to know Peter. During his 15-day stay in Jerusalem, he didn't even see the other apostles, except James, the Lord's brother. Paul's point is quite clear that after three years of meditation and ministry on his own, immediately after the revelation from Christ, followed by a mere 15-day visit to Peter, can't possibly support the Jewish Christian's contention that he was a second-hand disciple of the Jerusalem apostles. The point is that he was an independent witness. Therefore, he was not proclaiming an abridged version of something he'd heard in Jerusalem. His opponents might not have found that very convincing. Paul had to learn about the faith from somewhere, didn't he? However, I think it's very important to notice that in reality, Paul probably had a, a much better grasp of the gospel as an opponent of it, as a Pharisee, than many did and do who claimed to be Christian. He was such a zealous Pharisee that he'd be very familiar with the gospel that he was fighting against. And just to drive his point even further home, Paul's final bit of evidence is that he wasn't even known in the churches in Jerusalem. In verse 22, Paul says, And I was still not known by sight to the churches of Christ in Judea. They only heard it said, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me, he says. The point is, if Paul had been an understudy of the apostles in Jerusalem, these are precisely the churches where he would have worked. But they don't even know him. Therefore, the whole attempt of the Jewish Christians to discredit Paul's independent apostleship is a complete failure. On the basis of evidence that the Galatians could easily check out, Paul makes a compelling case that his 180 degree turn from persecutor to apostle can only be explained by a revelation and commission from Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, his apostleship is not from men or through man. 
as verse 1 says. And his gospel, as verse 12 says, he did not receive from man, nor was he taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the point of verse 11 is very well established. This is not man's gospel. It is God's gospel. Good news that comes from God and accords with his great love as shown to us in Jesus Christ. I think we can glean one or two things from what Paul's saying for our own church here in Camborne today, particularly during this time of vacancy. Our core value says it all starts with the gospel. This letter to the Galatians reminds us that it is God's gospel, not man's. And so we here must seek to remain true to the truth of the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ which we heard all about last week, I understand. When interviewed in church recently, Ken said, I believe we all have to have our own Damascus Road experience. I agree. It is Christ, not man, who changes lives through revelation and inspiration. We must not give up on anyone. And if God can transform the Pharisee Paul so dramatically then no one is beyond redemption. And that's certainly the good news of the gospel that we can take on board here in Camborne. And finally, it's God who calls people to the ministry. It was Jesus who commissioned Paul specifically to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Given the wonderful history of our lovely church, even though it's just a few short years, we know that we can pray and we can trust that God will call our next minister to lead Camborne Church and that he has a special message and mission for us too. And we must pray and expect God to reveal that to us in the coming months and years. Let's just finish with a word of prayer. Father, our thanks is inadequate for the love that you have shown to us by your grace. But we do come in gratitude and in love for you. We pray for your loving support through this slightly difficult time of vacancy. And trust the choice of our new minister to your care. Inspire us all through the revelation of your gospel to each of us as individuals, that we may remain faithful to your truth and serve you in every area of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.